Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your care for us and your provision in our lives. We give back to you our tithes and our offerings from hearts that are grateful and cheerful. And Lord, we acknowledge that you alone are our provider. May we continue to be generous with our lives and all that you've given to us as we live out our days here. Would you make us a generous people? We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You guys can uh, remain standing because we're going to read scripture, but I'm going to make an introduction first, so I won't make this very long, but uh, it's a privilege for us to have with us today Reverend Jeff Lee from Florida Atlantic University. He's the RUF campus minister there, and Frank and I have had a chance to get to know him over lunch, and so we've invited him to come and to to uh, preach God's word to us today and share a little bit about the ministry of RUF. Most of you know about RUF. He's going to tell us a little bit more about it, but it's a a privilege to have he and his wife, Jenny, and their four boys with us here today. So, Jeff, I invite you up to bring God's word to us. We thank you for being here. Let Let me add one final thing. I stuck you up here and told you to close the service with the final hymn, but I didn't tell you it's unusual. We have a supplemental hymnal, Okay. so I didn't want you to, to trip you up with the hymnal. That's where it is. The rest of the people will know where to go. Sorry about that. Well, it's good to be with you all this morning. Thank you for, uh, for having us. I uh, was telling my wife you know, on the way up, I feel like in some ways my worlds are colliding a little bit uh, because there's a, a couple of folks here that are longtime family friends, the, the Bacchuses and the Blanzols uh, from the church where we grew up. Uh, the Ailes were family who we uh, got to know in our time in Tampa uh, at USF whenever I was serving there with RUF. And currently, Jacob and Jessica Shaver, uh, niece and nephew of Clayton Shaver, are part of our ministry uh, at FAU, down at NRUF at FAU. And so uh, it's sort of like all of these sort of different times of my, t- of my life and childhood and current life and everything else coming together uh, in ways that you can only say the Lord would orchestrate these events. And so it's truly a privilege to be here and to see you all this morning. Uh, Let's read God's Word together, or I'll read it for you. You can follow along. I shouldn't say together. I'll read it. You can follow along. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. Uh, I'll read and pray, and then uh, you'll be able to be seated. So let me read for us. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let me pray for us. Our Lord and our God, as we read your word, we confess that we need your spirit and your grace to be upon us this morning. Father, we are frail people, mindful even this morning of the Apostle Paul's words that when he wants to do what is good, evil is close at hand. Uh, and yet at the same time, as he react, or reflects on that reality of who will rescue us from this body of death, we exalt and we lift up the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so therefore, we come this morning without fear that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Lord, will that reality settle into our hearts this morning 
as we expound and understand your word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. In 1902, a little girl was born in, this, in Taft, Oklahoma. Uh, her name would not be one that would be readily known in the record books, a little girl by the name of Sarah Rector. Uh, Sarah Rector's story is significant because her ancestors were slaves who were owned by the Creek Indian tribe in the state of Alabama. And whenever the Creek Indian tribe were forced out of Alabama to go to the middle part of the country on that trail of tears in the state of Oklahoma, they took with them their slaves, of whom one of their future descendants would be this young girl named Sarah Rector. Sarah was born into an impoverished family. Uh, she was poor. Uh, their family struggled to make ends meet. But a significant event occurred in their life in 1907 when the Oklahoma became a state. They just, the state decided to enact uh, this decision to give land to a number of the, of, the, uh, of the Native American tribes, not just of the tribes, but also of those who at one time would have been connected to them, even those who were formerly slaves. So at four years old, Sarah Rector became a landowner in the state of Oklahoma. The land, though, wasn't very valuable. It wasn't seemingly good for anything. It was full of rocks. It was hard to farm or to grow anything out of this soil. Many sought ways to, to sell it. And true, even as a four-year-old, her father would have sold her property, but there was a law preventing the sale of property from minors. And so now having to pay property taxes on this land that they've been given continued to struggle to make ends meet. However, whenever Sarah Rector was nine years old in 1911, an exploratory oil company came to start drilling in that part of the state and they struck oil under the land that they had been allotted. And at 11 years old, she and her family became some of the wealthiest people in the country. Today's values, as an 11-year-old, she was sitting on a net worth of something in the neighborhood of $26 million that she had as an 11-year-old. Would completely transform, obviously, her life. There's a certain irony to that story as you think about the reality of here is her family struggling to eke out an existence on property and on land that doesn't seem like it has any value and isn't doing anything for them. And yet, all the while underneath are riches untold. If only they had access to get to what was beneath. And in some ways, as I read this section of the book of Ephesians, we're studying Ephesians in RUF on Wednesday night. I'm preaching through the book of Ephesians, and in particular in this section, as the Apostle Paul is praying for his people, it's almost as though he's taking them down into the depths of the gospel and saying, these are the realities that are yours in Christ. These are the realities that are ours in Christ. Uh, so often it's as if we were sort of struggling in our existence in the Christian life along the surface, wondering does this really matter? Does this really make a difference? And in the depths of the gospel of the heart of Christ, we find wealth untold that will serve us that is truly ours because of what Christ has accomplished for us. You can imagine and see that this is why I say that this prayer from the Apostle Paul, these verses are, are fuel for the Christian life. This is, this is these are, these are truths that can transform and be a catalyst to, to, to serve us well as we follow hard after Christ and appropriate all the gifts that he has truly accomplished for us. And so this morning, what I want to do is just to dive in, particularly in the middle portion of, these, of this section, uh, to plumb the depths 
and make application of what God has done for us in Christ. You can see his setup here in verses 15, 16, and 17. I'll read it again. He prays that for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks to you or for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. It's almost as if this is the setup of, 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 the, whole, of the whole prayer. He's, he's, rea- he's realizing and confessing the reality that these are spiritual truths that he is about to, about to explain, that he is about to unfold. The reality that we are those who have been numbered as those who are in Christ, who have been purchased from death and brought to life. And he says, here now... Are, are the, is the fuel, if you will, for the Christian life. And so here's the first thing that I think he would call us to see and that he expounds for the Ephesians. The first thing for us to see is the hope that is ours in Christ. You see it there midway through in verse 18, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. That you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Sort of the first thing for us to grasp and to hold on to is to understand the hope that is really ours as followers of Christ. You know, hope is a powerful reality, uh, but hope is something that's easily lost. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation that you felt hopeless about, hopeless for anything to change. And when you reach that point where you just feel this sense of hopelessness, despair sets in, and it's easy to just sort of fall back into a place of, of, of a lethargic attitude and with little motivation to move forward. Maybe it's a hopeless situation about a job or a relationship, or a family dynamic, that a sense of hopelessness has settled in. And I think as people, we're sort of wired for hope. I see this all the time, you know, in doing college ministry, uh, I often will tell folks, when, you're, when you do RUF, you're sort of like a missionary. Instead of being sent overseas, I'm sent to the college campus, and my job, my call, if you will, is to bring the gospel to bear on students' lives in the place in which they study, work, serve, and play, which means that I have to learn what it's like to be a student, not as a student, but as a pastor and as a missionary. One of the things that I see all the time, and you will remember this if you were ever in college or in your student days, is that every semester, there's this palpable sense of hope that everybody has. The old semester is over. There's a new semester at hand, new professors, a new course, uh, a new syllabus. All of these, all of these things that there's this, there's this hope reigns eternal at the beginning of the semester because, well, this semester is going to be different, and this semester I'm not going to procrastinate, and this semester I'm not going to wait until the last minute to do my assignments. And we get to this point here, almost to November, and that hope has faded, and we often see that there's a sense of just despair has settled in, and this is where my exams have fallen and where my classes really lie. It's why I think as a people, we love New Year's. We love New Year's because it seems like a fresh start and a new opportunity. And, and, and this year, I'm going I'm to put these New Year's resolutions in place. And now here we are in November. And maybe I shouldn't even ask how you did on your New Year's resolutions last year, right? We are just sort of programmed and wired for hope. But the hope that Paul is talking about in this passage, the hope that he's pointing the Ephesians to isn't just sort of this sentimental surface level hope that I hope that things will be different this time. I hope this year I will be able to kind of really watch what I eat. This year I hope that I'll really exercise. 
This is a hope that's bound in the realities of the gospel of who God is and what he's accomplished on our behalf in Christ. If you flip one page over or if you scroll just a couple verses down on your phone, you'll see that in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, he ties back in this reality of hope, remember, calling the Ephesians to remember a time when they were without hope. And notice how he connects it to the gospel. He says, verse 12, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But, verse 13, now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Isn't that where our hope truly lies this morning? Isn't that the hope that is so often assailed in our walk with Christ that we forget the reality that at one time we were strangers and aliens? Strangers and aliens to the covenants of God and his ways, but God who's rich in mercy has brought us near because of the reality of what Christ has accomplished on the cross. And because of that, we have hope. Hope for what God is doing in our life. Hope for what God will do in the future. Hope in the present circumstances and situations at work, because as Paul often thinks and argues from the greater to the lesser, that if God would be rich in mercy when we were at our worst, well, then how then will he not also provide and and uh, take care of us in all things even now. And so the apostle calls us to see the hope that is ours in Christ. Philippians 1.6, Paul writes that he who began a good work in you will see it through to the day of completion, even to the day of Christ Jesus. Hope that God is at work. He's working all of these things in order to make known to us the realities of the gospel. And so even through the trials and the, and the tribulations, the joys and the celebrations, we have this hope that's weighted even further and more significant down than just the circumstances of life, but even in the details and trials and struggles of life. There's a young girl in our ministry right now who's battling a deep, deep struggle with depression. And as she looks at her life and she's confessed and said, God has blessed me with with everything that I could ever want. My family loves me. I know that I'm cared for. My grades are good. I have friends and a community. And yet I just feel this sense of darkness that won't lift. And she says, but I know this. Each and every day, God is at work. And even in this trial, he will see me through and see through this time of darkness and despair. And what is it but a joy to see her grasping the hope that God is at work, the hope that she's been called to, the hope of God that's a promise for us in Christ, fuel for the Christian life, even in those dark moments and days. Yet it's not just the hope that God calls us to that sustains us, it's actually even he continues on in this passage and to see the second thing that he's calling the Ephesians to see and also for us to see is not just the hope that is ours in Christ, But what are the riches of his inheritance? It's the second aspect of this passage. What are the riches of his inheritance towards us who believe? You can see it there in verse uh, 18. The hope to which he has called you. And what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Now, it's interesting when you read different commentaries and, and theologians and those who have studied this passage and try to make application of it is, One of the questions becomes, what is the application? Who are these riches applied to? 
In other words, it seems as though the Apostle Paul almost is, is sort of serving a double entendre in the way that he's writing this passage, almost a, a double application and meaning. Most read this passage in the straightforward way that I would think it probably uh, primarily means is that we as believers in Christ have an eternal reward and inheritance that is ours because of what Christ has accomplished for us. The riches of Christ have been applied to you and it stands as your eternal inheritance even now as we follow him. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 8.18 that the sufferings of this present life aren't worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. Think about that. The sufferings of this, of this present life, it's not even worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed. We, we compare all the time whether or not what we're going through is worth what we're suffering for. Is it worth not eating that donut for the sake of something greater that's supposed to come later, my, my weight or my uh, exercise or whatever the case may be? Is it worth working these extra hours in order for the paycheck that's going to come? Is it worth, Paul says, the sufferings of this life? It's not even worth comparing. Why? Because of the inheritance that is ours in Christ. The comparison completely fails before it even begins. Jesus told his disciples that he goes to prepare a place for them, for us. He says, if it wasn't so, I wouldn't have, t- I would have told you. But he goes to prepare a place for us that we have an eternal home, a reward that is ours in Christ. That's why in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says that, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but they, they run to get a prize, but that prize that they run for is, an, is, a, is a perishable wreath. We run to obtain that which is imperishable, that can never be taken, an inheritance that will never fade or fail. That's why Moses, in Hebrews chapter 11, says, when all the riches of Egypt were his, he considered the reproach of Christ of greater wealth than even that which all of the Egyptian uh, way of life could afford. Have you lost sight of that reward? in your walk with Christ? Have you lost sight of that glorious inheritance that one day we too will obtain, that as you, as you battle and struggle, even in day in and day out of, whether it's a trial, a struggle, a temptation, to realize that you have an inheritance that is yours in the gospel. But I told you that there's something of a double meaning here. Uh, that's the straightforward primary meaning. There's some who have often said, well, you know, there's often, there's sort of the syntax allows for this reality that, well, maybe the, the riches of his inheritance is the riches of, of God's inheritance. That's an interesting angle to think about. What is God's inheritance? What is it that Christ has accomplished but a people, a spiritual heritage that one day will be presented before the Lord as these who God is presented as what Christ has accomplished on our behalf in order to bring glory to God. Brothers and sisters, it means that you and I are part of that glorious inheritance. Psalm 17, 8, we read that God's people are his treasured possession, the apple of his eye. Have you ever had anybody get close to poking you in the eye? (laughs) Have you ever gone to the eye doctor and you just sort of reflexively reach back whenever somebody even gets near your eye? That's the description that he's getting at when that's who you are in God's presence, so treasured and protected that God is watching over you and seeing you through. 
you see the connection then between the hope that is ours and this glorious inheritance that awaits us. That's a sort of a secondary meaning, but the reality is that we have an inheritance waiting for us because of what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. And I think about the Ephesians. I think this isn't just sort of pie in the sky, you know, sort of uh, just sort of spiritual lingo that's meant to sound good. I think there were deep implications for the church in Ephesus. If you remember back in Acts chapter 19, when the Apostle Paul went into the city of Ephesus, and when he went to plant the church and to share the gospel and, and share with those the hope that is ours in Christ, do you remember who the Ephesians were at that time? They were described as a people who were caught up in sort of a spiritual uh, warcraft, a spiritual witchcraft that was in the air of the day in the city of Ephesus. Sort of a spiritual, uh, spiritual magic or dark arts, if you will. And we don't know all of the details of that, but it, we're told that whenever the Apostle Paul went and he preached the gospel to them, many left that former way of life. They repented of the former way in which they lived and they turned to follow after Christ, leaving behind the tools of their trade in order to follow after Christ. And in that practice of what they used to perform in these spiritual magic or dark arts, if you will, were some sort of books that they had collected. Uh, These books were something that was of significant value and worth. It was something in that day before the printing press that you would have treasured and passed down for generations to come. And so when these folks came to faith in Christ, they had a minor dilemma on their hands. What do we do with the books? You know, it might be tempting to sell them, to make some money out of it. But to do so would only to perpetuate the spiritual darkness that would continue with wherever those books would land. And so we read in Acts chapter 19, verses 18, that when many of those who are now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices, a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. They burned their former way of life. They set it on fire, and they counted, it says in Acts 19, the value of those books, and it came to 50,000 pieces of silver, a significant value among the Ephesians. Paul, their pastor, intimately aware of their way of life, I wonder now if the Ephesians were living paycheck to paycheck. I wonder if now they look back on that moment, not with regret, but with the implications of what life meant now for them. What is our inheritance? What will we leave to future generations? And so Paul makes sure that they understand and are aware of the depths of the gospel, that there's a glorious eternal inheritance that is theirs for them and for their offspring as well. Fuel for the Christian life, if you will as we follow after Christ and follow him. I think there's so many ways in which that guards us in the day of temptation, doesn't it? When you know that you have an eternal inheritance that is yours in Christ, and when you know that God has provided for all of your needs according to the riches that are his, well, then now can't we trust him in the day-to-day circumstances of life to provide for our needs? Uh, Can we not, with Christ, along with that reality, take hold of the reality that we have no fear to worry about tomorrow. Let tomorrow take care of itself. Today, God will provide for all that we need. I love the fact that as soon as those books were burned in Ephesus, 
the very next verse in Acts chapter 19 says that the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. That act of faith, burning what stood as an earthly, worldly inheritance, was the catalyst for the gospel to go forward and the word to spread mightily among their midst. It was something that these folks, these Ephesians, knew firsthand. And Paul's calling them to see that reality once again, even now. But finally, it's not just the hope that is ours in Christ, and it's not just the riches of this glorious inheritance that is ours, but he's also calling us to finally see the immeasurable power of the greatness of God on our behalf. Notice there in verse 19, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. Truly, for those who are poor, we need to see the riches that are ours in Christ. For those who are weak, frail, fearful, we need to see the power of God for us, the immeasurable power of the greatness of God working for those of us who believe. And I think there's a couple of things to notice in that section as sort of the the direction and the description of God's power. Notice the direction and the description of God's power. His direction is this power that's working for us or toward us who believe. What do I mean by that? I think it's important to see that so so often, I think when we think of things that are powerful in, in life, those things that are so powerful are often destructive. Great power, you think of, of, a, of a bomb going off or a natural disaster that brings that wreaks havoc on the world. What if there's a way in which that power could be directed in ways that we're working for rather than against? This is something of a goofy and sort of silly illustration, but I think it serves the point. We just witnessed this year a devastating hurricane off our coast hit the Bahamas. One of the most powerful hurricanes, the power that we've ever witnessed, completely destroy an island. What if that hurricane were coming working towards the Bahamas or working for the Bahamas? What if there's a sense of celebration that here comes the hurricane and it's going to put food on the shelves and houses are going to be built? And landscape is going to be put back into place because this hurricane has hit. God's power, Paul says, is working toward us who believe. For us, not against. Why? Because of the realities of Ephesians chapter 1 that our lives have been hid in Christ. And God is working for you. What is the immeasurable greatness And it's connected this power towards the truth of the gospel. As he thinks about this power, he can't help but make this this word connection to the reality of what Christ has accomplished. Remember, he was raised from the dead, verse 20, when he was seated at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. That's the direction for you, but that's also the description. What's God's power? How is it described? This isn't health, wealth sort of gospel that God's just going to do all of these wonderful things for you. This is God has done all of these wonderful things for you. When? At the cross. 
He has called you and redeemed you and saved you when you were at your worst and when I was at my worst. And yet, in his grace and mercy, he would still come. One of my friends in uh, ministry often uses this type of thinking, and I, and I borrow his illustration to serve the point, that the significance, uh, the significance of the cure indicates the depth of the problem. The significance of the cure indicates the depth of the problem. Now, I give this illustration. Imagine that my wife and I, we go out on a date, and we come back home, and we have the babysitter there watching the kids, and when we walk in, the babysitter says, hey, I had a little bit of a mishap. I want to let you know one of, one of the kids got cut. Uh, and we had to put a Band-Aid on it. Uh, how significant is that cure? Well, not very significant. It just needed a Band-Aid. How significant was the problem? Not much. What if we get home from that date and the babysitter says, hey, something has happened. He slipped and fell, and it looks like there's going to need to be stitches, and you have to take him to the hospital. How significant is the cure? Stitches are going to be need, needed. We can start to see that the power, or that we can start to see the problem is getting a little bit worse. What if we get home to see that there's an ambulance in front of our house? getting ready to take one of the kids to the hospital. How significant is the problem? What if the child's unconscious and needs to be life-flighted to the hospital? Do you see the analogy? God needed to come in the flesh from heaven to redeem you and me from our sin so that we might have a glorious inheritance that is ours in Christ. Do you see the significance of the problem? How great was our sin? Well, so great that God sent his son to this earth to live the perfect life, to redeem us from our sin in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. How great is the solution? How great is the description of this power working toward us who believe? And you can see why when the Apostle Paul prays for the Ephesians and as he prays for his people, he's really focusing in on these three realities in order to encourage them, to embolden them, to give them a, a, a catalyst for the Christian life that they might serve and live faithfully, that to know the hope that we have in the truth of the gospel, to understand the riches of this glorious inheritance that's ours. And to know the power of God who's working toward us, towards us and for us that we finally have seen in the cross. You know, I think of little Sarah Rector and her family walking around on that land, scratching and eking out an existence, hoping to just make ends meet. So often, I think, within the Christian life, we sort of scratch around at the surface, just taking a little bit here and there looking for some little nugget or something that can sustain us when really there's a significance to the truth of the gospel. That this isn't a prayer for second blessing. This is an application of truly what has been accomplished for you and I at the cross. A hope to sustain us, an inheritance that is ours in the future, but finally the power of God working in and through us in the present in order that we might see and fully, faithfully serve him each and every day. Let me pray for us. Our Lord and our God, we do marvel at this truth, that you are our God and that you have called us to be your people. We thank you for the hope that is ours, that has been purchased for us because of the work of Christ on our behalf. 
We confess, Father, that so often we fail to appropriate and to really grasp the inheritance that is ours waiting for us in the new heavens and the new earth. But Lord, each and every day as we go even from here today, will you make known to us and will you continue to work through us by the power of your greatness that we'll see your hand at work even in the circumstances and daily aspects of our lives. Pray that you'll continue to transform us and to make us more and more into your image. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.